Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you're listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am thrilled to say that this episode is made possible by the wonderful people at Hatch Outdoors. There's a reason you've been seeing Hatch on all the guideboats these days, and the reason is that quality gear is invaluable when it comes to landing that fish of a lifetime. I've been using Hatch Reels since their first year of business, and I can honestly say that when it comes to confidence in my equipment, Hatch has never let me down. Every component of a Hatch Reel is proudly made in the USA, but it's their prompt customer service that really shines through. Hatch supports the industry, the economy, and the environment. Please share the support and make your next reel a hatch. I promise you won't regret it. It's not every day you get to interview your best friend. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Adrian Camo, steelhead guide, photographer, spaycaster, and fly tire extraordinaire. We sit down in her small cabin on the Skeena River to discuss some subjects that are commonly swept under the rug. I was born and raised in a little town called Sointula, which is on an island off of the northeast coast of Vancouver Island. It's a very small community, very small island. Um, my parents had a really beautiful piece of property there, and that's where I grew up until I left for college. It's uh, maybe 800 people. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so tiny. So uh, we never locked our doors. We, you know, left the keys in the car. Uh, we had a big lawn, a big playground, and we lived across the street from the ocean. And we could run around and play in the woods and play on the beach. And get, my mom would hose us off before we went in the house when we got super dirty. And 
It was a really great place to be a kid. Lots of time spent outdoors, although I was the one that always wanted to be inside playing with my Barbies or reading a book or playing on the <laughs> piano, and my mom had to basically kick me out outside. But I'm super grateful now that I had the opportunity to to do it, to, to grow up like that. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people don't get to experience these days, so I'm really, really fortunate that way. Was it a fishing, or is it a fishing community? Uh, it is, actually. It was it was established as a Finnish utopian society. Wow. Are you, you're not Finnish, are you? <laughs> I'm not Finnish, no. You're, are you French? Uh, my On my dad's side, yeah, I'm, I'm French. That's where my last name comes from. On my mom's side, it's English and Scottish. So were your parents fishermen? No, actually. My my parents both worked for the school district uh, on northern Vancouver Island. My dad did maintenance and locksmithing for the entire district. So he traveled over to Vancouver Island and, and visited the schools in like Port McNeil, Port Hardy, some of the communities over there. And my mom did um, groundskeeping, and she drove the Boston Swing Tula for a long time. And uh, Yeah, so neither one of them fished at all they were actually kind of hippies in the sense that they (laughs) didn't believe in killing anything uh to the point where my sister and I were both raised completely vegetarian I've never eaten any meat in my life including any fish so uh, yeah you're you're gonna be one of my toughest podcasts okay because you're my best friend (laughs) (laughs) and I know everything about you (laughs) I know and and that makes it very (laughs) tricky very tricky very tricky what I am going to go on to say for my listener who who maybe hasn't heard of you before Mm -hmm. I'm certain I'm not alone in this viewpoint that you are probably in my top five most underrated anglers in the industry today in my opinion not underrated in, in by me but by the industry and and the public I find that you're incredibly underrated Thank you. You are this amazing photographer, one of the best fishermen, you know, anglers I know. You are one hell of a fly tire, and you cast like a million bucks, <laughs> and yet you're just kind of tucked away in the bush. And and I know the story, and and I know how you came to be where you are today. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to share it a bit. Is that okay? Absolutely. So, as a little girl, yes. you grew up in this amazing little hippie community, if you will. Yeah. And you had some really shitty stuff happen to you when you were a kid. Yes. I and did. we won't dive into it too deep. And now I'm sure my listeners are going, oh dear, and they're thinking <laughs> the worst. Your father passed away when you were a little girl. Yeah, I was 11 when he passed away. He uh, developed lung cancer. When I was 10, and um, by the time they found it, he had, um, it had progressed. It was a fast-growing cancer, and it had progressed to the point where it was, it was too late to do anything about it. So, as a young girl with no, like, I'd never experienced death before, anyone that I knew that was close to me, and, and you just don't know how to process that, you know, you understand it, but you you don't know how to process it, and I didn't know how to grieve properly, and, um, you know, my dad was, was really, really important to me. He was more like me in certain ways than my mom was, and, and I always felt like we had a really, really special bond, and, and it, um, it was devastating. It's still devastating. It's never, never an okay thing to lose a parent, um, and it's something I don't think I've ever dealt with properly. And, um, you know, it affects you. It's affected my life 
since then. Okay, so mom raised you and your sister. <laughs> yes, my uh, my mom did everything she could to provide us with as normal a life as we could have after an experience like that, and worked really, really hard both at her job and and um, at being involved in our lives. Um, she's a really strong woman. So then you leave to go to school, and what were you taking in school? Um, I went to the University of British Columbia, and I was doing a general arts degree. So I, I had planned to do a double major <laughs> in English and theater, actually. I do recall that, yeah. So this is all part of why you're so artistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I always I wrote stories when I was a kid and tried drawing and wrote poetry and. Yeah, that's the other thing. The other quality I forgot to mention is your writing. You're an exceptional writer. Thank you. So let's talk about what happens next. Because at this stage, you're not a fisherman. No, no, at no. all. There's no animal cruelty. You still never eat. I mean, t- we're sitting here today. You've still never eaten meat. No. When that time comes, I would like to cook. Bacon for you. Time, that's okay. <laughs> There's going to be a lineup of people. <laughs> I want that opportunity. Dibs, damn it. <laughs> okay, so you go to school, and then what happens? We all want to get to the juicy stuff. The juicy stuff. So Where the fishing start. Uh, it was my second year at university, and I needed a summer job. Um, I'd worked at a bed and breakfast, um, doing some housekeeping the summer before that, and then in my last year of high school, I'd worked for a a lodge called Nemo Bay which is a very well-known BC um, fly fishing slash outdoor adventure lodge. So it was sort of natural to apply at a lodge somewhere to to make a lot of money, basically, to, before I went back to school. Uh, so I got a job at a resort called King Pacific Lodge. I was a saltwater fishing lodge on Princess Royal Island, which is in the Great Bear Rainforest. And I uh, went up there, and on the flight up I met a man... <laughs> or boy. <laughs> yeah, he's probably more a boy at that point. Uh, his name was Aaron, and he was one of the guides at the lodge, uh, both their saltwater program and they had a heli fly fishing program as well. So he also guided those trips. And we hit it off right away, and we started dating. And I think I went out with him um, to fly fish for coho like, once or twice, Never really tried casting. I think he tried to teach me off the dock one day, and he just kind of threw his hands up in the air and walked away. <laughs> As I did. <laughs> so we finished up our summer. We came back to the city. We continued dating. And by the following winter, I obviously had gotten to know him a lot better and realized just how important fly fishing was for him. I had just I had no concept of fishing, fly fishing, the lifestyle, the commitment. I had no idea anything about it and he'd started fishing when he was a young kid and not just fishing fly fishing when he was a very young boy I've seen pictures of him it was like five or six holding a fly rod so it was part of who he was and I figured that I should go out and experience it with him to be a good girlfriend and to see what it was all about and and to try and share in in his passion and that was kind of just it I started fishing with him the first day we went out um, I will absolutely never forget it. We went out on a um, local steelhead stream just outside of Vancouver. And it was a beautiful sunny day in February. And he gave me an 8-weight RPL Plus. Nine-and-a-half-foot, <laughs> 8-weight RPL Plus. And showed me how to cast a little bit. And there's nobody else out there. And we fished all these runs. And 
I remember being so proud of myself because I shot a little bit of line. Yeah. And then we get into a run, and he hooked and landed two beautiful chrome winter steelhead. Whew! <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's cool. They're kind of shiny. <laughs> <laughs> and now I really realize how incredible that actually yeah. was. Uh, but it, it was just, he was so passionate about it and so patient. It made it really easy for me to keep going with him. And at first it definitely was so that I could be with him and spend time with him. But all of a sudden, and I don't really know when that point was, it was what I wanted to be doing as well. So I just kept doing it. It's interesting because one of the number one questions I get from people is, how do I get my spouse interested in fishing with me? And I never, I mean, I fished before I met any of my boyfriends. And they fished for the most part before they met me. And so I never really know how to answer that honestly. Mm -hmm. I always just say, make it her thing. Don't let it be your thing. But you're the perfect person to ask. What what do you suggest for someone who has a spouse and they want to get them into fly fishing? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is to have patience, right? And it's so much more difficult when it is your spouse. There's a level of intimacy that allows you to get frustrated quicker and to be a little more abrupt and short um, with that person. And, And I think for sometimes there's maybe a slight bit of resentment that something that you love to do is now not your just your thing anymore. So... There's got to be a lot of patience and, and understanding between both parties. And you can't force it. You just, you can't force it. You can't force somebody to be out in conditions they don't like. You can't force somebody to understand what it is to love it. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to know yourself and you have to know your, your partner to, to know whether you taking them out and teaching them is actually the best thing or not. Yeah. And sometimes it may not be. You know, if it's a woman and you know other women anglers, try and hook them up, get her casting lesson at a sh- yeah, you know, a shop, surround her with people, other people besides yourself that love the sport as much as you do. Mm-hmm. Because, for me anyway, and, and I'd like to think that other people feel the same way too, other people's passion in something is really, really inspiring to me. And... It makes me want to, it makes me curious. It makes me want to see what it's all about. Like, what is this thing that you can be this passionate about? But you just have to try it and see what happens. And sometimes it just doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. So then what happens? Um, I've been fishing for a couple years, and Aaron at that time worked for a fly shop um, in Surrey, which is just outside of Vancouver, called Michael and Young Fly Shop. It's a very well-known fly shop in Canada. Um, It's the only fly-only shop at this time in all of Vancouver and the surrounding areas. So really good people there and I'd met a few of them and I was actually fishing on the Thompson. Aaron and I had gone up there um, to do some steelhead fishing and his boss was up there at the same time, a man named Dave. And I'd met Dave a few times before and so one day after fishing we're sitting around the Log Cabin Pub which is a very famous spot to have a drink after fishing on the Thompson. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and um, over a beer, Dave asked me if I would be interested in coming in to help them out with doing some paperwork at the shop. So he just needed somebody to, to help him with you know invoices and writing checks and, and all the behind-the-scenes bullshit. 
And at that point, I hadn't been working, and I said, yeah, absolutely. And so that's, that was how it started. And within, uh, I think, about three months, three and a half months, I was actually working full-time, both doing the the accounting and paperwork stuff as well as uh, working on the floor, selling tackle. And that was kind of it for a long time. I, I worked there for uh, nearly eight years. I became assistant manager and, yeah, spent a lot of time selling fly fishing gear to people. And that's where I met you. Yes, it is. <laughs> I will never forget that day either. <laughs> so <laughs> I still have the picture of April in my head. Um, I don't remember if you were going to work or you'd come from work. I think you were going to work. Yeah, I would have been going to work because I didn't work days. I worked nights. So... I believe I was the only person on the floor when he came in. The guys were in the back um, working, and I think it was the fall after it started at the shop. And the front door opens, and in walks these gigantic stiletto heels. I used to love those pumps. Hot, pink pumps, pointy-toed. <laughs> this blonde goddess walks into my shop. <laughs> Just we don't get a, we at that point there I'd never seen somebody that looked like you in the shop. I hadn't been working there very long. I didn't fair, see a lot of women. Fair enough. And first thing I I don't remember exactly the first thing you said to me, but I know it was something like I need waiters. Yeah, I need to get a pair of waiters. <laughs> and I sold you a pair of Sam's waiters because I've been rocking out the my bare brown neoprenes. That's right. yeah. <laughs> and then you know what's really embarrassing is you sold me the Sims classics. Yeah. And I felt so sexy in them yeah. that I was running around the house, when I my old house, Yeah. and I went to go down the stairs, and I didn't realize how slippery the stocking was <laughs> And I freaking bailed down like two flights of stairs. Oh, wow. Because of you, damn it. <laughs> I don't think you told me that before. Yeah, that's hilarious. hilarious. It was really awful. Did I tell you that after you left, I ran into the back and told the guys to come out and see this chick that had just come into the store and bought a no. some stairs? <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. And we obviously connected. And yes. actually, when I left, a few nights later, I had a dream about you. I think you did tell me that. Yeah. yeah. And it was just, it was time. And so we we eventually ended up fishing together. Yeah. I don't even remember how we, because I don't think we exchanged information that day. I think that. Oh, we I just took your card. No, I was all over you like a oh, rash. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I took your card. Yeah. So that that's the story of, of us. That's the story of you and I. Wow, it's so romantic. It is. <laughs> so then what happens with you? Let's talk about your career a little bit. Okay. So you work at the shop. Yes. Everybody knows you as Adrian, Aaron's girlfriend. Yes. And eventually, this amazing casting woman who works at the shop. This is kind of how it started, right? Yeah. But then eventually, at some point, it's almost it almost happened to me overnight anyway. You mm-hmm. just broke free. You were Adrian Kamal. The, there was no more Aaron's girlfriend. You were so talented that you were you were just your own entity. Do you remember when this happened? Do you know how it happened? I don't remember specifically. Um, I'd, I'd met a lot of people both through the shop and through fishing, particularly on the Thompson, um, who were involved in the industry. And Aaron and I split up. We dated for five years, and, and then we split up. And um, he's still an amazing guy, and I will forever be thankful for the knowledge and the support that he gave me, and the, and the instruction as well, because he taught me how to cast. Yeah, he's a great caster. And he's an incredible caster, and he's an even better instructor, Teacher, and I was really, really lucky. 
And the other thing was is that we worked, um, so Mike Lynn Young, the shop, has two separate locations. And so Aaron and I, when, when I initially started working, we did work together a little bit. But for the last six years that um, I worked at the shop and, and sort of the last year of our relationship, we worked at different locations. So it was easy to sort of create my own identity um, just with that little bit of separation. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we split up, um, I'd met some some really great people, one of them being a man named Steve Choate, who you were also good friends with, uh, another one being Chris Anderson, and a handful of other guys. And we spent some time with those guys, and uh, Steve was always very, very generous with us and very supportive of both you and I and our love of fly fishing. And he had, um, he actually put us in... Or, or put us in touch with the, the people from G. Loomis. That's right, yeah. And we had our photos in the catalog. That's right. And that's really the first thing I remember, for me anyway, happening that was beyond the fly shop. That was more than just fishing on my days off and selling gear in the shop. It just sort of gradually happened for me. It like happened the right way for you. I, I, I've seen that your rise was gradual and you're here to stay. I mean, nobody can deny your your skill at this stage in the game. Well, there's a lot of opportunities that I probably could have taken that I didn't, um, that maybe would have made, um, I wouldn't necessarily say more successful, but maybe more well-known at this point um, right. in and time. That's one of the big things I want to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. Before I go there, though, I just want to kind of knock out anything else as far as a timeline goes. So yes. in my head... I might be wrong, so please correct me. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, it, it just seemed like you you were a lot more places. Yes. You were doing some blogging for some people. Yes. Uh, eventually, you started your own blog. Is that still active? Uh, I still have it. I have not updated it in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's thefemaleangle.blogspot.com. Which is a great name, by the way. Female Thank Angle you. Is so Actually, cool. um... Another mutual friend of ours, Joel Shangle, uh, was the one that came up with that title, actually. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So you had your own blog. Yes. You kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. You were doing demonstrations at certain spay claves. Yes. Um, you were writing in various magazines. You were designing flies. A lot of people don't know this, but you're at, you sell a lot of people your flies. You've got a, a waiting list of people trying to buy your flies. You, you kind of do a bit of everything, and you do it well. So where does your career go from there? here? Um, when I'd been working at the shop for a few years, and I had a bunch of friends that worked for a guiding company in Chilliwack, and I was encouraged to do some some guiding. And so the guiding that, that I was doing down there was uh, for sturgeon and salmon. So obviously gear fishing for sturgeon and fly fishing for salmon, running jet boats on the Fraser River and the Harrison River. That's right. I, I didn't do very much of it. I, I did two seasons, two fall seasons, on my days off from the shop. So it was pretty limited, but it gave me a chance to, to try guiding and to see what that was all about. I really loved the guiding part of it. I did not enjoy how busy that area is. Oh, I um, hated it. It was misery for me when I used to do <laughs> There's it. a lot of boats. There's a lot of people. It's very busy at the boat launch. Um, and that, to me, it, it's not... Like, I personally never really salmon fished a lot because of how busy it was. And for me, that's just not what fly fishing was. So I knew that that kind of guiding was not the kind of guiding that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2012, I 
was looking for a change. I'd been at the shop for a long time. Um, I'd gone through some personal stuff and I needed to do something different. And so <laughs> I quit my job and I moved to Calgary and it literally happened in about 10 days that I decided to do it and I, and I left. And again, not because of anything to do with the shop or the people at the shop. They've always been incredibly good to me. Um, I just really needed to do something different and try something new. I'd been in relationships for, well, since I was 21. And at that point I was 30. (laughs) And I'd never really had a chance to, or felt that I had the opportunity to just go and do something totally different and change my life completely. So I went and worked for a friend in Calgary who owns a a guiding business there, working as his office manager and and doing some guiding on the Bow River for trout, which was totally new. Um, I trout fished before, but not that kind of trout fishing. And, you know, we were fishing out of drift boats, and I was, you know, learned how to row a boat, and, and, um, you know, getting really into the technical aspect of trout fishing that I'd never experienced before, so... I did that for two summers. The winter that I spent in Calgary, uh, it was sunny and beautiful a lot of the time, but it was also very, very cold. Mm-hmm. And I'd been used to the, being outside all winter fishing for winter steelhead and bull trout and cutthroat and and the rain and wind and just, you know, everything that the, the BC coast is. And it was really, really, really difficult to be away from it. I also just didn't really feel at home in Calgary. You know, I met some great people, had a really, really good time, had a lot of fun fishing there. But I just needed to come to come back to my steelhead and my rain and my... Mm-hmm. Once it's in your blood, you can't get it out. You cannot get it out. No, it's stuck there. When did your photography really take off then? Was it then? Yeah, it. Uh, Calgary was sort of uh, the time when I started to take it more seriously. I've always loved to take photos and... and messing around with it that artistic thing we were talking about I always just really enjoyed it I bought bought my first DSLR in 2009 I actually was going on a trip to Russia and felt that I needed a a better quality camera than my little digital waterproof (laughs) and and so I bought a Nikon D60 just nothing fancy and and that is actually the camera I am still using to this day so let's talk a little bit about you and where you're at today, if that's okay. Absolutely. To keep this genuine, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you some stuff that I'm really interested in. Okay. You have everything going for you, and you were making some headway. Yes. I mean, you still are. Everybody in the industry knows who you are. But from a public standpoint, a lot of them don't know who you are. Yes. And you had the potential to take this sport by the balls and do what you wanted with it. Yes. So... You made the decision to take a step back, I think. Did you? Um, It wasn't a super conscious decision. So I'd always kind of shied away from it. I never had a huge amount of confidence. I was confident in certain ways and not confident in others. (laughs) If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, Well, we all have those insecurities. Yeah. I just, uh, I never really felt that I was sort of qualified enough to um, jump on some of those opportunities, especially when I first started. Yeah, yeah, because um, you're totally different now than, than yeah, where, where, where yeah, you were Yeah, like you know, you remember what I was like back then. April, yeah. help bring me out of my shell. <laughs> I love you. I loved it then, but I, it's been really cool to watch you grow and, and see who yeah. you are today. Um, apart, most of it, though, is that I suffer from depression. And 
it is something that I constantly struggle with. It's clinical depression. And uh, I go through periods of time where I find it very difficult to function in regular society. And I tend to kind of disappear when I go through an episode, which means that I don't, um, I don't return emails, I don't return phone calls, I don't return texts. So part of it is a defense mechanism if I, because I don't want to let people down. And sometimes my brain tells me that it's easier to not take an opportunity for fear of letting somebody down. So I'd rather not take the opportunity and not mess it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh my god okay so um it's a very personal thing but um in the last couple of years i have been really trying to be very open about my depression right. uh, because if it if people know about it then it actually makes it easier for me to continue to function at a normal level yeah yeah because <laughs> i remember when you used to be really secretive about it yeah and in that time i know that you when you did start to open up you actually found a lot of people in in our circles suffer from depression is that absolutely so do you think that's something that is is pretty normal in the fishing world and we just don't speak about it i I mean i think it's pretty normal in the world in general yeah Um, yeah yeah i think that um i'm sure you've heard this before i know you've heard this before but fishing is a a very solitary sport Mm -hmm. and for me it's the only time i can get my head to shut up so it does work for you then? It does. I, I, I have this constant inner struggle going on where there's one part of my brain who is telling me all the things I'm doing wrong and all the things that I'm horrible about myself and, and you know all of those really negative detrimental thoughts that, that come along with, with depression. And the only time I can really shut those up is when I'm out on the water and I'm absorbed in the sounds and the smells and... and you know, whether it's a bird or a cloud, like you've seen me staring at clouds like an idiot. Um, but it really is, um, it's a sanctuary. And I think that connection with nature is, is something that every human being needs. And I think that when you are in a state where you don't feel like you have anybody that you can talk to, even though you probably do, you, you I, I know I get in a state where I feel like I, it's something that I can't talk to anybody about um, because they won't understand, and and that's at least a connection that I will always have no matter what. And that shows in your photos. It makes mm-hmm. sense because one of the number one things I hear about you is it's so interesting to see life through her eyes via her lens, and that makes perfect sense. I will never look at one of your photos the same way again now <laughs> that I know that. Yeah. Cool. Those moments, you know, that you see the mist coming off the water or just, you know, the way the sun's setting and reflecting off the clouds. And I'm always in such awe of that moment. And I don't want to forget it, right? Like, I don't want to forget a fish either. I love taking fish photos, and I'm super happy to have a fish photo to remind me of catching that fish. But I want I want a photo that also reminds me of the way the, the clouds looked that day and the way my friend was casting and and all those little moments that yeah that that make me feel connected and alive is social media and the way that it's being used today something that does have an impact on on you absolutely can you elaborate um i rarely go on facebook because when i do 
and I get off of Facebook, I just kind of feel shitty. It doesn't seem like other people's lives are perfect, but it seems like people are trying really hard to either make 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 it seem like their lives are perfect, uh, whether it's I'm catching the biggest fish, I'm catching the most fish, I'm going to the most places, or it's just a lot of negativity. Yeah. A lot of negativity, um, whether it's people's personal lives that they're choosing to share on on Facebook for the world to see, or whether it's... Um, you know, feeling like you're a tough guy because you're behind a computer and you can make rude comments on other people's photos or, or on other people's posts. And and I have chosen to, to separate myself from that because it absolutely uh, makes me feel worse. And I know that Facebook is a, is a great tool and it's a really good way to stay in touch with people and there are some really, uh, really great things about being on Facebook. But I found for me personally, yeah, that it, that it did not make me feel better about life or about myself in fact it made me feel worse so yeah I I found that I had to distance myself from it um Instagram I love because for me I can I can post my photos and I can look at other people's photos and that's all it is it's photos Mm -hmm. um and having a passion for photography as well as just liking positivity mm-hmm. uh, I find Instagram to be a far superior medium for that so do I that's strange actually it's funny that you mentioned that when I'm on Facebook and my business Facebook page I don't really have access I mean I'm sure I have access but I don't look at other people's posts because I'm there on business right but when I'm on my personal page yes I always leave feeling shitty yes and I think a lot of it is the drama I don't I don't it doesn't bother me when people are off on vacation and stuff but because mm-hmm. I know that a lot of those vacations aren't really vacations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I always feel pretty crappy. Yeah. Uh, but Instagram, I always feel amazing. Yeah. Moving forward. Yes. Where do you see yourself and what are you currently up to? I am currently living in Terrace. I'm working for a fly fishing uh, outfit up here called Skinas Bay on the banks of the Skinner River. And I am very, very fortunate to be involved right from the ground up on uh, a brand new guiding operation. Literally from the ground up. This place <laughs> last year was not looking like it is today. No, no. We we have a beautiful piece of property. Uh, it has 14 cabins on it and a main lodge, um, sauna, hot tub. And we have direct access to the Skeena River, which is very difficult to come by. Mm-hmm. And so we have a small crew up here, and we have been working very hard at getting this place renovated. We renovated nine of the cabins and part of the main lodge. And I am proud to say that I now I can add carpenter <laughs> to my resume as I help with some of the construction. You're the woman who does everything. <laughs> it's amazing to me. It makes me tired. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, when I'm not doing construction, um, I will be doing some guarding and some hostessing and some photography and... Um, I'll make your drinks, I'll print your license, I'll help you learn how to cast, I'll take your photo. Um, I kind of get to do a little bit of everything, which is really, really incredible. I'm Um, so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited because a lot of people are going to get to really learn more about who you are. Thank you. This is what life is supposed to be about. So I'm very happy here. Coming up, Adrian and I talk about spayorama, photography, and something I typically try to avoid drawing attention to being a woman in the sport. 
Again, thank you to Hatch. The tight tolerance between frame and spool means no more tangling with skinny running line that gets trapped and reversed. I've lost some big fish that way, and Hatch simply removes the constant checking and worrying. After all, there are more important things to be paying attention to when on the water. Visit Hatch at www.hatchoutdoors.com and be prepared to make one of the best fishing investments you've made so far. We're sitting in your cabin right now. It is still over 30 degrees, by the way, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning. Whoa, what's happening to our weather? (laughs) Can I fire out some random questions at you? I love random questions. Okay, cool. Here we go. You competed in Spayorama. I did. I came to cheer for you. I did. That was so amazing. And scream and... (laughs) I was so happy you were there. Oh, you, you, you were incredible. Let's talk about preparation and yes. what goes through your head. I mean, what's it like competing at Spayorama? Spayorama is amazing and overwhelming and so much fun and so scary. <laughs> it scared the hell out of me, and I was standing on the sidelines. Um, it's it's different. I mean, it's it's such an isolated little world. It's you know, you're taking fly fishing, you're breaking it down into double-handed casting, and then you're breaking it down into distance casting, and then you're and then you're adding competition. So um, it's a very small group of people who who choose to to do that, right? And I've never been a huge fan of of competition and fishing in any aspect. But this is this is different. I love casting. I love spay casting. And as you well know, I love trying to cast as far as I can all the time, yeah. which is sometimes <laughs> for my own detriment. <laughs> so it was really neat to um, to not only train and and get comfortable with the big rod and the long line, but to go to a place where that is all it's about. And I mean, really, it's the same thing as with fishing. Your only competition is really yourself. You know, what somebody else does out there has no bearing on what you're going to do out there. It really doesn't. And so the only thing you have to, to control is, is your head. And and <laughs> that's a lot more difficult than you might think. Mm-hmm. I was saying today, every time that a jet boat goes by, yeah, I suddenly forget how to cast. Yes, because I hold my breath and it's like, oh my god, what if they see me casting and I screw up, you know? And then of yeah. course you screw up. So I can only imagine having, I mean, hundreds of people staring at you. Yes, and the winds a factor. Yep. You did amazing. You were in convulsions. I mean, you were shivering, I was shaking. Yes. Adrenaline. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. Would you go back? I would love to go back. I would really love to go back. Walking into the ponds the first day, we got there a few days early to do some practice and get used to the ponds. And it was, it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen because I just walked in and, and there's like six feet of the biggest bay cast I've ever seen in my life going on at one time. And I was just like, what is this place? Like to know it and then to go and actually see it and witness it in real life is is. It's mind-blowing. I think I had four or five practice sessions throughout the few days we were there to to warm up. And I was feeling really confident in the main pond by the, by the last session. So when the competition came around, I was like, okay, I'm going to be nervous. And I'll have my typical, like, you know, grumbly tummy and, like, just, like, Shakes. not be able to eat anything. <laughs> and, yeah. um, but I, I really thought that... I would be a lot calmer getting into the pond for my turn at competition, and and I was scared to death, and I totally forgot all the stuff that I had learned while I was there, and all I could think about was making sure that I was breathing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great start. It was an eye-opener to to actually get in the pond for the first time, and, and you understand why... 
some people who are just amazing, incredible casters struggle to get really big cast during competition because it's a mental thing. And, and some people are just far better than it at, at controlling that than other people are. Like mm. you said, I came out of the pond and the adrenaline rush, like, you know, finally let go. And then I, my whole body was vibrating. Yeah. Cause you're not a very competitive person. And some of the girls who compete in Spayrama are the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. Yes. So I was always very proud of you for going into that competition. Thank you. Okay, next random question. Shooting with a Nikon D60. Yes. <laughs> You're giving me a look right now. I am giving you a look. Because part of me really wants to give you my Nikon D80. <laughs> but the other part kind of wants to keep my Nikon D80. <laughs> I should um, probably yes. let you borrow it. I'll ask Catherine if she has any shooting coming up. <laughs> I get a, I get a lot of weird looks when I bring my camera out. Well, how are you doing it? I mean, I don't know anything about photography, but in case there's anyone out there listening who does, yes. can you maybe just explain how you're making it all <laughs> look so good? So I shoot on a Nikon D60, which is um, an older Nikon. When I bought it, I believe it was discontinued like three months after I bought it. It wasn't their very entry-level DSLR, but it was like their second one up at that time. And I've never really been in a position financially where I could benefit from a better camera like that I could afford it. I'm hopefully going to get to that point soon. But uh, when I, the first few years I had it, it was totally new and I never had anything, a camera like that. And I was shooting everything on automatic and it was fantastic. And I didn't know a lot about photography and light and composition to, to really need anything more. So when I started actually trying to get better at it and trying to start using some of the manual functions and, and actually even more so when I actually started editing my photos is when I started to really learn um, all of that stuff. And I mean, I'm still learning. I still feel like a complete amateur most of the time. But for me, a photo is more about what you can capture in that moment than it is about having the best camera. So for fly fishing, you have a lot of movement involved. You have the water, you have the cast, you have the wind, and all of those require a really fast shutter speed to actually capture. If you want to capture a line moving through the air, you have to shoot at a high shutter speed right. in order to, to freeze that, that moment. And with my camera, in low light conditions, in order to get a fast shutter speed, I have to bump up my ISO. And by doing that, every time you bump your ISO up, you lose quality. So you lose pixels in your photo. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So once, with my camera, it's, it's very limited in range, and I'm not going to get super technical with it. Um, but basically, that mine has a very limited ISO range. Um, any low light condition, even during the middle of the day, if it's really cloudy and rainy, if I shoot on a high exposure, my photos come out really grainy. Um, with everything I've done, including casting and fly tying, I just kind of do it my own at my own pace and my own way, and it seems to have worked out really well, and I feel like photography is going in the same direction for me. So it's shooting enough photos that you can go through a series that you've taken with slightly different compositions at slightly different angles and find the one that when you put it on your computer and you actually edit that photo, you go, you, you'll... Well, for me, I know instantly which one is the one. 
And so then the next time I go out and I'm shooting under similar conditions, now all of a sudden I have a much better idea right from the get-go uh-huh. of what I want my composition to be and, and what settings my camera should be on. So it's a, it's a lot of trial and error, and it's taken up a lot of my life in the last couple of years. I spend hours and hours and hours editing photos, um, but I love it. What do you want people to know you as? What does what do you want the world to see Adrian Camo as? <laughs> I I would I would like to just be known as somebody who loves what they do. I've been really fortunate in my career, so to speak, that um, I've had a lot of really great opportunities and met a lot of really good people, and I've been able to do a lot of really amazing things. But I think most of that sort of stems from the fact that I, I truly love fly fishing in, in all of its aspects. And that's not saying I don't get frustrated and don't want to throw my rod in the river and storm away some days, but um, in general, I love it, and I love sharing that with other people. You know, I, as I get older, as we both get older, Nicholas, older women the other day. I know what's happening. <laughs> oh, my God. But I, I'm starting to realize what you know, what's really important in my life and, and struggling with depression as well. I'm having periods of my life where um, I've either been really broke or felt really alone or felt homeless in a sense. I've always had a bed, but, I've, you know, I've had periods of time where I haven't truly had a home and realizing the things that are, are really important to me. And I don't need to make a million dollars and I don't need to to be famous. You know, I need to have good people in my life and I need to have a good place to be and and I need to be happy with what I do and trust me this and saying it like this sounds like this wonderful beautiful thing and I'm on this road to this incredible life and <laughs> there's always going to be struggles but if I can if I can be known as somebody who loves fly fishing and is genuine about it and and that's that's good enough for me. Is there anything about depression that I just don't know to ask? I feel like there's something I need to at least address, but I, I don't I don't know what to ask. <laughs> well, that's part of the problem with depression because it's not like it is a disease, right? And but it's not it's not oh I broke my leg, I have to be in the hospital and I can't work, right? And it's something like oh you are broken, you can't you can't function. It's a mental thing. So outwardly, you can appear fine. And a lot of people who suffer from depression are really, really good at hiding it. It's almost, well, for me, and when I'm, when I'm really struggling with it, uh, and I have to be social or I have to be around people a lot, it's almost just like a little shield that you put on and you go out and you're happy and you're outgoing and you're friendly and people are like wow you're so cool you're so great and then you know and then you don't talk to them for three months because you're holed up in your room crying or not able to get out of bed so it's not something that is easily understood if you don't suffer from it or have never suffered from it and that was always the hardest thing to to wrap my head around to be able to talk about it with people um, certain people in my life at times when I would try and talk about it would shut me down mm. so it's not it's not something that if you don't suffer from you should be expected to understand but 
it is something, it is real. It is a disease. And if you know that, just being open, open to the idea that somebody else can be thinking differently than you are. Right. And, and that something that might seem really easy for you would be something that's very difficult for me. And sometimes that something is literally having a shower. Well, I've experienced a lot of this with you firsthand. Yes. And it's been it's been a challenge for both of us because yes, it we haven't understood each other. Yeah. The, yeah. I hope that you feel like you can talk to me about stuff. You are one of the few people in my life for the last few years that that I have felt totally comfortable talking about it with but you know you and I have been through a lot you know the the best thing you can do to help somebody who is is struggling with depression is to make them feel safe oh that's a really good point you know and safe in the sense like not like you're not going to physically hurt yourself but safe in the sense that if you need to go and crawl into bed at 11 o'clock in the morning and stay in bed all day that it's okay to do that being safe to to just talk or being safe to just cry and not feel like it needs to be fixed or feel like you have to have a big conversation all the time about it that's the biggest thing and that's what you know that's part of the reason why you and I have been able to talk about it is because you've made me feel really safe no good um and so I'm fortunate enough now to have a, a few people in my life who I, I feel that way around. Um, but for a really long time, I didn't. And I think for most people who suffer from it, it's really difficult to find people who they feel that safe around. And it's a struggle. I mean, it's tough. I'm sure there's times when you wanted to just strangle you. <laughs> Life's so short, Adrian. What's wrong? Just make it better. It's, everything's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I'm I'm very glad that you didn't. No. <laughs> um, well, clinical depression is something you have all the time. It's a chemical imbalance, so it's not you know I'm not going to be cured, right? It's it's going to be a constant struggle for the rest of my life, probably. You know, I think age, getting older, and understanding it a bit more, and being accepting of it is is a huge step. And knowing, even when you're in sort of your darkest place, that that there are people out there who need you <laughs> it makes a big difference I know for me it's with my mom and when I get really really sad and I'm thinking about doing things that are not very good for myself I just think of how devastating it would be for her if you're suffering from depression please don't be afraid to ask for help whether it be friends family a doctor or a counselor there is someone there to listen if you live in Canada, visit www.suicideprevention.ca. If in Australia, visit www.lifeline.org.au. And if you're in the U.S., you can call 1-800-273-TALK. Sometimes the people who are closest to us are hurting, and they're too afraid to talk about it. Let's change that. The elephant in the room for me is being a woman in the sport. And... You and I have been friends for a long time, and we've seen a lot of things happen, especially in the last, what do you think, seven, six, five, six years? Yes. Some for the better, you know, some some not so much. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I always connected with you was that I finally found my, like my other woman, you know? <laughs> and it was so small back then. When you and I got into fly fishing, there, there weren't a lot of women doing it, but there also wasn't the same level of social media that there is today and and it was more you didn't know what 
other people outside of your circle of friends that you would talk to right. on a regular basis. You didn't know what anyone else anywhere else in the world was doing. So, you know, I, I think there probably was more than than we think that there was. Mm-hmm. But for, for all intents and purposes, for what we knew, there was not... Like, when I started fishing, there I literally did not know of any women that did it. Right. And, um, you know, I wore guys' clothes and didn't wear any makeup and took all my jewelry off and and went fishing with the boys. And that was what it was. Yeah, we were so different because you would be one of the boys Mm -hmm. and I'd often be coming straight after waitressing so (laughs) I'd be very much one of the girls we were opposite ends of the spectrum (laughs) you for the longest time if people were to find photos of you from back then you know you were one of the boys and now you don't feel like you need to look like one of the boys anymore no talk me through it well you know when I started fishing it was it was with Aaron like I talked about before and it was I just kind of, you know, okay, he's wearing an olive hoodie, so I'm going to have a gray hoodie, or, you know, I'm going camping, so why would I wear makeup, and why would I, you know, but at that point in time, too, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super confident in in myself or my looks, and uh, you actually (laughs) broke me out of my shell, so to speak, we really did, Um, I remember one night in particular, we went clubbing in downtown Vancouver, and uh, I actually, you know, put on some girl clothes and some high heels, and your girl clothes were actually a... (laughs) camouflage bustier so it was kind of a meet in the middle <laughs> we we got a good balance you, you fixed me up um and we still didn't know each other very well at that time mm-hmm. um but I, I really remember that as being you know sort of this, the beginning of the end so to speak <laughs> um, and then uh because you you did have a lot of photos of you with your makeup on your casino makeup and your your cocktail waitress nails and um you know you had earrings and you had <laughs> and after a while I just started thinking you know what like cause I was always a girly girl growing up I love pink I still love pink yeah I was a huge fan of pink I love pink I love wearing dresses I was you know stealing my sister's makeup I wanted to get my ears pierced uh, you know I read fashion magazines and like, you know I, I, I really was a gr- girly girl and mm-hmm. you are you're one of the most girly girls girls <laughs> which is so ironical whenever people ask me I get a kick out of it because I'm actually kind of like the rough and gruff put your freaking fists up girl you know and and you're the giggly sweet <laughs> loves Adrian um you know it's so it's so funny just the different perceptions but well it just goes to show that what you see isn't what you get right like like a photo tells you nothing about a person are you happier though on the river now that you feel like you are yourself out there oh 100 percent good 100 percent you know some days I wear makeup and some days I don't and and the determining factor is what I feel like and how much time I have when I get up in the morning yeah and what you fell asleep with on your face the night before <laughs> that's my determining factor if I go out with Charles or with whomever more often than not waitressing or working just go to sleep with all my makeup on and I just wake up and I go fishing yeah but it's the stupidest conversation where people ask me you know about my makeup you know that's my biggest one of my biggest pet peeves is in an interview when someone asks me about your makeup so I won't do that to you now well I just think I mean it's for us as, as girls it's 
yeah, we can talk about makeup, you know, I still have full conversations about makeup, it's fun, I like makeup, yeah. but um, <laughs> I think as an angler, it, it, it shouldn't determine anything, and, and it shouldn't be, to me it shouldn't be an issue, and I've, I know that I have personally had a very smooth ride through the industry. You know, I've certainly made my fair share of mistakes and, and burned a few bridges that didn't need to be burned. But for the most part, I've had a lot of great opportunities present themselves to me without me having even to go search them out. Um, and I feel very grateful for that. And I've always been surrounded by men in particular. I, I have a great group of women friends, but, but in terms of my career, um, I've had a lot of very supportive men whether it's with casting or with work or with photography. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. And I've never personally tried to base any of that on whether or not I wear makeup. And I, I don't think that. that... It's so stupid. I'm sorry. It's so dumb. <laughs> and, and I would choose to think that none of those, those people do either, right? That, that those opportunities came because they met me as a person and they saw who I was as a person and they had, you know, heard through other people about, you know, what my skills were or they'd seen them for themselves and, and gave me the opportunity based on that. I, I'm not going to deny that being a woman has absolutely helped me and definitely put me in, in a more advantageous spot than, than if I had been a boy. But I go fishing with the guys, I go fishing with the girls. It, it doesn't matter. I'm fishing with my buddies, right? Fishing is, is not, to me, is not gender biased. The fish don't care who you are or what you look like. They don't, they don't care how old you are. They don't care what you do for work. And, you know, I, I try not to judge people based on a photograph, and I, I would hope that other people don't judge me based on a photograph. And, you know, there's a lot of talk online about you know how people look and, and particularly how women look you don't tend to see guys ragging on guys about their looks but you find guys ragging on women about their looks or making snide comments and the hidden part of this whole thing is that the women are almost worse than the men they're just a little quieter about it and there's a, so many great women in this industry who uh, have done a lot of really good things for the sport and are incredible anglers and instructors and guides and business owners. But there's a level of competition which just kind of disgusts me. I, I, I don't fish for competition. I hate it. Fishing is, is what I do because it makes me feel good. You have to really tread lightly with this with this subject, which is tough because if anybody should be able to ha to have this conversation, it should be me. But I'm still very cautious with it. So I guess what I'm going to ask you next is, when did things change? <laughs> when did things change? Well, I don't think it's it's specific to, to fly fishing. I don't even think it's just with fishing. It's just society in, in general, right? I mean, um, sex sells, right? And, and it's easy to be anonymous when you're sitting behind a computer screen and, and um, everything's instant gratification and, and it's easy to, to just jump from one thing to the next to the next to the next without really thinking about any of the impact you, you have as you, as you make those jumps. So as much as it's, you know, globalization and, and bringing everyone together at the same time, um, it's creating this sort of level of anonymity, right? We're all just a drop in the bucket. We're all just a drop in the bucket. But 
if you didn't have all those individual drops, you would have nothing, right? Each individual drop is super important. You know, fly fishing, it, it, when I started, it was it was this beautiful, pure thing. Not pure in the sense of, of you know, oh, I'm an elitist fly angler, but pure in the sense of, of strictly being passionate about the outdoors, being passionate about fish, getting away from it all, ignoring everything else in your daily life. And now it becomes, I got to run home and, and post a photo of the fish that I caught that day so that everyone else knows that I had a great day. And I better look good doing it because otherwise somebody's going to tell me I look ugly. It, it is a guide. It's a lot of pressure because you're trying to book trips. Yeah. And if you're a sponsored angler, it's a lot of pressure because you've got to keep your sponsors happy. Yep. And if you're an instructor, I mean, it just it feels like it's never ending. It is never ending. We need to understand that a lot of the people who are sponsored on the internet today are not sponsored financially. They're sponsored with like with free hoodies, with gear, and and yeah, rods and gear exactly. Again, I think it's just a, a product of our our industry growing beyond. It's user group. You know, fly fishing as a sport, as far as I know, and I could be totally wrong on these numbers, but the last I heard was that fly fishing as a sport is not really growing all that much. But there are far more companies um, selling fly fishing product now than there ever used to be. So you have more product, you have less people. Or not less people, but not more people to, to balance it out. Right. So, you know, everyone is just starts out trying to be successful at what they do. And uh, at some point, you get bigger and bigger and bigger, and you push harder and harder and harder. So, you know, you'll see small companies pushing harder on certain avenues. You see bigger companies pushing harder on, diff on other avenues. But again, it's, it's kind of down to a competition thing, right? And, and the reason people get sponsored is that the companies want their product to be seen. Yeah. You have more companies trying to get their product seen. You have more people who are getting free stuff and and part of the stipulation is to is to wear it and all of a sudden it becomes a comp competition right who's gonna have who's gonna gain more from which person and and you know oh this person we want this person because of this and we want that person because of that and oh they're they're you know somebody else is trying to get them or you know it, it becomes it, it sort of just taints the whole idea again in my opinion, of fly fishing. Mm -hmm. And I think that you should love the gear that you fish. You shouldn't fish the stuff you get for free because you get it for free. And I find it difficult to see people wearing product that they're only, they're not doing it because they love the product. Yeah. They're doing it because they're getting it for free. That's yeah. why it's so nice when you can actually find somebody who you genuinely love the product. Yeah. And you've always been with them and then you sign on. Well, when we started, that was what being sponsored was about, right? right. It was a mutual relationship between, you know, an angler who loved the product and a company who respected the angler enough to, to want them, to want to support them in what they do. Uh, you know, this isn't just for women. This is the same thing with men and, and, again, just my opinion. But it's not that way anymore. It's not... But do you think the companies are driving a lot of this because they have so many people lined up to be this pro staffer and you know it, it is a fine line of pimping it out if you will but also it feels like there's the other hand the other end of the spectrum where people are so desperate for fame or whatever it is that or no, notoriety whatever it is people are after these days that they're willing to do everything for free 
Yes. And it's driving the industry broke. And so if somebody comes to me and wants me to even do an event and I have to take a day of travel to get there. Yes. Then my time during the day yeah. and then they travel back home to my family mm-hmm. and they want me to do it for free. And I say, no, this is my day rate. I mean, I'm a diva. I mean, no one's ever actually called me a, a diva as such because it's all very professional when the communication's happening, but they're not shy to say, well, so-and-so will do it for free. And my response is, well, then hire so-and-so because yeah. I'm not going to do it for free. I, I honestly don't think that, that the way the industry is going, it can sustain itself on, on this this model that, that is happening now, which is you know very social media-based, and it's a far less personal relationship between the sponsored angler and the, and the sponsor, or the, you know, the pro staffer and the company, or whatever the case may be. Um, but I don't think it's sustainable, right? I, you know, there's going to be... It's already getting oversaturated, right? I, you know, I, I I love photos, but, you know, I, I don't want to see every photo on one particular person's feed be a constant stream of product placement. Mm-hmm. You know, to be honest with you, at some point, I'm going to stop following that person. You know, I, I don't want to watch a really great video and have, you know, a 10-second slow-mo panorama of somebody's... Uh, the company name on somebody's boot. I'm sorry, I just don't want to see that. And I get that people are just trying to make a living and do something that they love to do, but it's going to get old. It's getting old. It's getting old. If I see one more slow motion shot of someone doing up a belt or putting their waders on, I'm going to throw up. Yeah. Including in my own videos, I might add. (laughs) So... So at some point there's going to be a turning point, but it's going to you know it's going to go in in a different direction, and whether that has to do with how the industry itself is going or whether that has to do with a change in social media, you can't say what it's going to be. But you know, I, I think that with more women getting into the sport, there's been a lot more advertising involving women too, right? And and so I'm going to say it: young, attractive women sell product. Whatever it is, not just fly fishing. I mean, that's the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Young, beautiful people make companies money. You know, from a marketing standpoint, it's a great idea. Um, it used to be a good idea. Now, it makes me actually want to veer away. I mean, it's so obvious what's happening out there. Well, it is to you. But you've been in this industry a long time, as have I. We've both been around a long time. We've seen the inside of the industry. You know, probably you more so than I have, but, I've, you know, I've still seen quite a bit. And, um, you know, we haven't, like, in the grand scheme of things, no, we haven't been in this industry a long time. In the terms of, of the last 10 years and the changes in society and in the industry, um, we've, we've been through a big change. So, yeah, there's far more young, pretty women being used in, in advertising, um, in fly fishing. And from uh, a female perspective... On one hand, it's really cool that that women are a lot more accepted uh, in the sport in general. It's really great. I'm glad to see more women involved. You know, it's it's nice to to feel a lot more comfortable as a woman in the sport. From from a f- professional standpoint, again, I think we're we're taking away from the sort of fundamental essence of fly fishing yeah and it's not even i mean it's not even a hate on women because that's not what it is because even i mean you you know look you know i've seen a lot of this yeah firsthand and many times i've committed to do something 
And what I've been told is going to be published is not what's published. Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be quotes that are incorrect or whether it be, you know, a storyline that's been altered or photos. I, you know, I think that we went for a long time, you know, and and partly because it was male dominated that, that this was not a part of it. It wasn't a factor, right? You know, we jumped on the whole, this whole thing a lot later than most other industries and sports did. But I think that we are in a unique position to to create some equality here where other sports may not have that that chance, you know? This is fly fishing is one of those times where it truly doesn't matter. Um I I personally feel that there's far more separation between the sexes in, in fly fishing than there ever was when it was it. considered a male dominated sport. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's shitty. And that's our you know, that's that's us. That's the last five or six years, we're this generation. We're, we're these people that created this. So we're in a unique position that maybe we we can try and shift it a little bit. And I'm not saying you and I, just you and I are going to change the world. I'm, I'm saying... I'm trying very hard, by the way, <laughs> just so you know. But you and I have had a, very, a lot of discussions on, on this subject, and we go in, in off on various tangents and... You know, we're we're lucky to be able to do what we do, and it's great to see that people like sharing, you know, with other people. I just think we need to be more conscious about our decision making, whether it's photos or ads or business or snide little comments on somebody's Facebook post that don't need to be there. There's there's a lot of unnecessary negativity in in general, and I guess you could say that that the comments I was just making were very negative, but it's not. You know, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to voice a concern and and maybe bring up an issue that's really that is really sensitive. You know, and people are scared to talk about it, and people are really afraid to to be seen saying the wrong thing. You and I have a lot more to say about this. Absolutely. I mean, it's ten after two in the morning. <laughs> we'll save it for another night yes. and fresh margaritas. Is there anything, my friend, that yes. you would like to add or to ask me? I would like to know how much makeup do you have? <laughs> <Shut> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I'm sure I'll think of something tomorrow morning, but yeah, it's uh, it's really refreshing to do something like this with you, because I think you've probably asked me some questions that you maybe never really thought to ask me in our normal interactions. Mm-hmm. The more intimate you can be with people in the sense of letting other people know who they are as a person and not what fly line they want to use but what drives them or you know the little quirks that that make them who they are and it's um it's really refreshing to see and i think it's long overdue thank you i love you i'm so glad you're the one doing it i love you too (laughs) let's go to bed and that concludes this episode of anchored Thank you so much for listening. Please leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. Mm-hmm.